Hello, welcome back to Legalize. I'm Shannon Gunn-Emery, one of the lawyers with Gun Law Group. Today, we're going to be talking about experts. Now, if you remember from another episode, I told you the Law Society of Alberta says that lawyers are basically not experts in anything. While I'd like to qualify that we can be really good in things, expert in law has a very particular meaning. And today, we're going to explore what that is. Now, the basic tenet in criminal law is you can't give your own opinion. Nope, the court does not want to hear what you think about the situation. In fact, one of the first things that lawyers learn in law school is not to say, I think, in court. Not because they're not thinking, but because no one wants to hear their opinion. Lawyers make submissions. They make arguments. They can present their case. But what they don't do is just present their thoughts on an issue because not only does the court not care what the lawyer thinks, it is not admissible. It's not good form either. Judges don't hesitate to tell lawyers that they can keep their opinions to themselves. Luckily, I have a forum in which I can share my opinion with the world because otherwise I might burst from all those unexpressed opinions. Whatever the subject, I likely have lots of thoughts on it. I am lucky to have a forum where my point of view can be expressed because the courtroom is definitely not it. I should add, though, that the justice system is an equal opportunity opinion suppressor because lawyers are also trained in law school not to write that the judge thought this or the judge thinks that or was of the view that. No, judges rule. Judges find. Judges decide. But judges do not think. They do not opine. You get the point. So, in court, can anyone tell the court what they're actually thinking? Yes, there is a special class of witness who can actually give their opinion, and, you guessed it, those are the experts. Opinion evidence can only come from a properly qualified expert. And that's not you, unless you're an expert listening to this. For the record, it's not me either, even if I think my opinion is right. Nope, the court does not want to hear opinion evidence unless they feel that you are actually qualified to give an opinion. There is a body of case law that spells out when a person has expertise such that they can give their own opinion. The first case that came out that really tackled this issue was the Queen and Mohan. In Mohan, the Supreme Court of Canada said that the admission of expert evidence depends on the application of the following criteria. Has to be relevant. Has to assist. It has to be necessary in assisting the trier of fact. So with a judge alone case, that's the judge. With a jury trial, that's the jury. The absence of any exclusionary rule and a properly qualified expert. The Supreme Court took up the theme again of experts 
in a case called White Burgess, Langille, Inman, and Abbott and Halliburton Co., but we all refer to it as White Burgess. This was in 2015. The court held that you still have to establish the threshold requirements of admissibility pursuant to Mohan, logical relevance, necessity in assisting the trier of fact, absence of any exclusionary rule, and a duly qualified expert. But the court went a little further. They looked carefully at the issues of independence and impartiality. After all, if you think about it, one side is calling an expert. And guess what? That expert probably supports their position, whereas the other side is going to call their expert. And guess what? That expert is probably going to contradict the first party's expert. So you can get into a war of experts. The court said, we are not wanting a trial by experts. There's a risk that the jury would be unable to make an effective and critical assessment of the evidence. No kidding. I mean, what is someone to think if you have two experts who are apparently giving diametrically opposite opinions on the same subject? So once the evidence has already passed the Mohan threshold, in White Burgess, the court said you have to balance the potential risks and benefits of admitting the evidence in order to decide whether the potential benefits justify the risks. I think one of the most important things that the court had to say was that an expert owes a duty to the court or the tribunal. So although they're called by one side or another, they have to be careful in the evidence that they give. They need to be impartial, independent, and free of bias. Now the other question that they turned their minds to was whether or not a proposed expert's independence and impartiality go to admissibility or just weight. So what this means is, can we hear it at all? Or if you realize that the person isn't as impartial or independent as we would like, do you just ascribe less weight to their evidence so you don't consider it as much as if it had been better? The final decision by the court was that this does go to admissibility. That is, if it's not independent, if it's not unbiased, if it's not impartial, it just doesn't go in. The expert must be fair, objective, and nonpartisan. If you have, unfortunately, had the opportunity to become intimately acquainted with the criminal justice system, you may be wondering, why didn't my lawyer call an expert? Maybe they just weren't doing their job properly. They could have done better. Gosh, I should have hired Gun Law Group. Mm, not quite. Well, maybe the last part would have been a good idea, but, you know, we all make mistakes. Anyway, the point is, we don't use an expert in every case, and your lawyer didn't do a bad job just because they didn't hire an expert. In fact, there are very few cases when we rely on experts. So when do we turn to the assistance of an expert? The general rule of thumb is, if you're trying to elicit evidence about something 
that is not in the realm of knowledge of the average person, you probably need an expert. So, for example, if there was an accident, you may need an accident reconstructionist. If there was fraud, you may need an expert to establish what the standards are for bookkeeping or for work in that area. If you are going for a constitutional challenge, you almost always need an expert. If you've listened to some of the other podcasts, you know I spoke about a trial where the subject matter was human trafficking and prostitution. In that case, we brought a successful challenge to the constitutionality of certain parts of legislation dealing with prostitution. And we were only successful because we had a crackerjack expert. So one of the things you might be curious about is how did we find our expert? Here is how I go about looking for an expert. First, I often start my search with Canley. As you know, I am a big fan. And I'll look at cases where the particular issue I am interested in was addressed by the court. And then I'll look to see who did the judge hear from? Who were the experts in that case? And what did they have to say? Then I'll look to see, was the case appealed? Was it overturned? And then, if it looks like it was pretty solid, I will start Googling that person to find out where are they. Normally, not every time, but often, they are professors at university. Those professors are some of our best resources. First, they don't appear to be biased, and second, they are very knowledgeable, usually. In our case, I found a very strong expert. I was very excited, and since I had to go to Ontario anyway for a different matter, I looked her up and we had a great conversation. It was a good fit. I felt that she would be able to assist us with the case, and I think she felt confident that we would be able to properly prepare her for what to expect in court. I was very pleased. I came back, told my co-counsel that I had found an expert, and she was all lined up and ready to go. And then disaster struck, literally just a few days before we were about to give our notice of our intention to call the expert. Because according to Section 657.3 of the Criminal Code, you can't just spring an expert on the other side by surprise. I wish you could. But no, you have to give notice under the Criminal Code. So just as we were about to give notice, she backed out. I have my suspicions as to why she did that. But regardless of the reasoning behind her decision, we now had no expert and we had to scramble fast. If we did not come up with a reasonable alternative in very short order, we were going to lose. Actually, no, it was worse than that. We weren't just going to lose. We weren't going to have the opportunity to try to win. And that would have been devastating. We had women who were testifying about their experiences in sex work 
and we were going to let them all down if we couldn't get the challenge to the finish line with the right expert. If we didn't find an expert, we couldn't really launch the challenge at all. And all that precious evidence from the women in the sex trade given at great personal cost would have been for nothing. And our clients were hoping that we would win after all. However, with our first expert backing out when she did and how she did, we were running out of time. Because you have to give expert notice 30 days before you're about to call the expert. And at least in my memory, we were days away from our deadline. Well, I frantically started scouring other cases and studies and contacting possible candidates to see if there was some expert out there who could help us at the very last minute. The short notice made us look like we were unprepared and didn't know what we were doing, even though it really was not our fault at all. Professor schedules are busy, and so I knew this was going to be an uphill battle. One after another said no. Luckily, at the very last minute, we found one who was very qualified, but who had never testified in court before. So this was going to be a challenge for everyone. First, her curriculum vitae, that's her resume, was impeccable. She had great credentials, and I was confident that we would be able to qualify her as an expert. And this brings up another point. Even though I felt that she definitely had the qualifications necessary to be considered an expert, the Crown might not agree, and of course they didn't agree. We were successful at the end of the day, but we had to go through what is called a qualification voir dire. A voir dire, if you remember from other episodes, is like a mini trial within a trial, and normally we enter into a voir dire to determine the admissibility of evidence. Here, we were in a voir dire to determine in what areas this particular person could be qualified as an expert. Dr. Katrin Roots, K-A-T-R-I-N-R-O-O-T-S, was indeed qualified in nearly all of the areas that we wanted, with some minor modifications here and there. That meant that she was able to give her opinion on the evidence presented in the case, on studies that she was aware of, and on the laws in operation in Canada regarding human trafficking and prostitution. The Crown had called their own expert, and he was qualified in some of the areas they sought and not in others too. This is normal. I would say that our expert really outshone the other one. It wasn't a trial by expert, but our expert was fantastic. In order to prepare her, we had to be very careful. We wanted to impress upon her how important it was that she be impartial and neutral. She could give her opinion, and that opinion we were hoping would help us, but she owed a greater duty to the court. And I believe she discharged that duty beautifully. She had a number of studies that she was going to be relying upon. We sent those off to the Crown ahead of time. She had a report that she was going to be relying upon that she had authored herself. 
that formed part of the notice that we had to give to the Crown ahead of time as well. One little quirk about experts is that they are often allowed to sit in and listen to the evidence of others if they are going to be potentially using that evidence in hypotheticals or in some way to bolster their opinion on a particular issue. Normally, there is a rule excluding all witnesses, but experts are exempted if there's an application made. And so our expert got to listen to the evidence of two sex workers who also happened to be law students. She was then able to comment on their evidence from the point of view of a researcher who had gone in depth into issues arising from sex work. It was awesome. She did so well. She testified over a day and a bit, if I recall correctly. That is a long time to be under the microscope and on the stand. Unfortunately, too, when a witness's evidence does not wrap up immediately and there is an intervening adjournment, once that person started testifying, in particular under cross-examination, one cannot discuss their evidence with that witness anymore. Although my co-counsel, Kim Ariel, fantastic lawyer, by the way, and I thought that Dr. Roots was doing an excellent job on the stand, we couldn't tell her until it was all over. Afterwards, I asked her how the experience had been for her, and she indicated that it felt like being beat up and it was exhausting. (laughs) Well, that wasn't my experience, and I was sorry for her, but I had loved every minute of it. I do hope that after a little bit of rest, that she won't shy away in the future from being an expert again. I guess, though, it's not surprising that she would have felt like it was a grueling process. The criminal justice system is an adversarial system, and so anybody who ends up being an expert can expect to have a rough ride from the opposing party. Thankfully, that is likely not the experience of experts acting in the realm of collaborative family law. Looking at experts in that field is very different. First, we refer to the experts in the collaborative family setting often as neutrals. We have financial neutrals, we have parenting specialists, and we have divorce coaches. Those are the main groups of experts that we turn to in order to assist our clients. Often the clients are a little reluctant They're like, okay, we're already paying for two lawyers in this process. We don't really want to pay for anyone more. Uh, uh, uh. When your collaborative family lawyer suggests an expert, it's really to keep the costs down. If we hire, for example, a financial expert, that person will often help us with drafting the property statement, getting all the disclosure from the clients, and putting it into a spreadsheet where there's the one party's column, the other party's column, and then we find out how they balance out. If the lawyers do that, the lawyers do it at their rate and their experience level, 
Remember, lawyers are not experts in anything. Engaging them to work on mathematical equations might just prove that point very convincingly. When the expert does it, it is often at a lower price point and is not only done by someone who knows what they're doing in that area, but is actually an expert at it. What could be better? So we're actually saving our clients money by suggesting that they start with a financial expert. The other thing that the financial expert will do will often be to give advice to the couple so that they understand how much money they need from that point in time to when they plan on retiring. That is amazingly helpful when, for example, one side is looking at, if I have to pay spousal support for this long at this rate, what am I going to need to actually retire myself? Or on the other side, they're looking at, well, if I only have this much to live on, what's my life going to look like? The financial experts that we rely on give answers to those questions and thereby reduce the stress immensely for this couple. Family law touches upon issues that go right to the core of a person's being. Home and family. Kids. People are so scared of what's going to happen to their kids during this process. That's when we can bring in parenting experts. They can give age-appropriate advice to the couple on how to properly support their children through the process so that hopefully the kids also come out stronger than when they went in. And these experts aren't pointing fingers. They're not the ones saying, he has a drinking problem, or you know, she's so manipulative, she's emotionally abusive, etc. No, they come in and they're focused on the kids and they're going to try to help the parents to be the best parents they can to those children. While sometimes one parent wants to just shut the other parent out of the kids' lives completely, that is neither the most likely result, nor is it usually the best option. Think about it. Kids are better off with more people loving them than fewer. The divorce coach is a very interesting individual. It is probably the most unique to collaborative expert that we have. This is often a person who has a background as a mental health professional, but their role in this process is to particularly support the person emotionally while they go through a divorce. And this is not therapy. It's not like individual counseling. It is specifically geared to giving the person the tools they need to properly be able to negotiate and participate through this collaborative divorce. That is invaluable because often in these cases, one person is sort of driving the divorce bus and the other person is being dragged along very unwillingly. And although you may be thinking that it's the one with road rash that will need the divorce coach, actually, the driver might need assistance too. Sometimes feelings of guilt arise because they initiated these proceedings and maybe they feel lost as to what is going to happen after. 
the divorce coach can help both parties when they're struggling. The client may take unreasonable positions, not aware of the feelings or emotion that are influencing the choices that they make. A divorce coach can make some of these underlying issues more apparent and therefore more resolvable. Using the divorce coach this way is often the key to moving forward or to overcoming what looks like an impasse. The divorce coach, as well, could be paid for through benefits. Yes, if you have health benefits and they cover counseling, for example, often the divorce coach could come under that rubric. And so it's not actually costing you more. This is the neat thing about collaborative because in the collaborative setting, we can rely on a host of people who actually don't end up costing you more. And yet, hopefully, the net result is that the couple come out stronger than they were before. They come out ready to go in their separate directions, but with the emotional, financial, and parenting tools that they need to be the best version of their independent self that they can be. So if you're going through the collaborative law process and your lawyer suggests a financial neutral, a divorce coach, or a parenting specialist, don't get nervous right off the bat. Don't worry that you can't afford it or it's not a good idea. Or why are they suggesting it in your case? We are suggesting it because we want the very best for you. And on the flip side, if your criminal lawyer suggests we should probably get an expert, know that they don't suggest that in every case. And so if they are making that suggestion, you should do it. Unfortunately, that may end up costing you quite a bit more, or depending on the expert, it may cost you nothing at all. Thank you for joining in today. Make sure to tune in for the next episode. We will be looking at what happens if you lost your IRS appeal. A little refresher, IRS immediate roadside sanctions for impaired or alcohol-related driving infractions. Should you go for judicial review or should you just leave it? Until next time, Shannon Gunn-Emery signing off.